Hey everyone, I'm David Trusivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes Ashes. So we have been talking about climate change recently, but today we're going to be talking about the surveillance and tracking that goes on in the real world. And a lot of us have uh, some idea about how our smartphones and web browsing reveal things about us and the data that generates. But we want to focus this episode specifically on some of the tracking that goes on outside of our digital apps and products. Of course, all that data is collected and, and digitized, and we will talk about how that impacts our daily life. Uh, but we want to make it kind of specific to that area. We also want to focus on the fact that this isn't just, you know, when we talk about surveillance and we talk about tracking, the story always initially goes to government surveillance and government tracking. And that is a big part of the equation. But it's not what we're going to talk about today. It's not the focus of this, because most of the tracking that we encounter day to day throughout our lives and that really affect us individually is not government tracking, but corporate tracking for consumer reasons and advertising and other things. So that's what we're going to focus on. Um, and this is part of a long series we're doing on tracking. So we'll eventually talk about that government stuff. We'll eventually talk about digital stuff. We'll talk about places like Facebook. But today, you know, like Daniel said, we are really focusing on how tracking follows you away from your computer off your phone and encounters you in the real world, even without any of your electronic devices. And I'm glad we're going to be breaking this up over several episodes, because when you start looking into it, you realize how extensive it is and just how much is going on. It's, it's really hard to even know where to begin and making sense of all this. And yeah, I mean, this is really an industry worth hundreds of billions of dollars because it's interconnected with advertising and data analytics and everything else. And there's so much money and so much information. It's just everywhere. It's in everything you look, every product you use, every single moment you have in your life is probably touched upon by this tracking and by the, the analytics and behavior modification that comes from it. So it's really an all-encompassing thing. And it's really, I think, the defining aspect of our modern digital tech-related world. So David, you say this is a characteristic of our digital world, but companies have always tracked us, right? Yeah, I mean, we've had some kind of tracking for as long as, as advertising and the idea of consumers as a whole has existed because for businesses to most efficiently target us and sell us things that we may or may not need, they've tried to break us down into demographics. And historically, you know, those demographics have been very broad. It's been about sex, male, female. It's been about age, 18 to 35, 35 to 40, whatever. Um, and it's just very general characteristics about us, maybe ethnicity, maybe where you live, zip code and stuff, just very general things that you can look up almost publicly. And so some of this was collected at the point of sale. When you would check out, they'd ask for your zip code or something. There were often buttons on the tills. They press a button for, you know, this is a male, this is a female checking out. And if you go farther back uh, in some countries and in some places, they would actually have a little pad of paper and write some details down about you every time somebody came and checked out and somebody would manually collect all this and use this data for direct mailing and sending out coupons and helping the, the company figure out where people are coming from. Very general things. It was a slow, expensive process and it didn't get into too much detail. So this is not something new. The fact that people have been tracking us in order to sell us things is not a new thing at all. And so basically, we've had this kind of demographic tracking, right? Or the attempt has been to categorize people into groups and to figure out how to effectively market to different areas of people, right? But I guess the digital component of this has allowed that to become more individualized and more personal. Yeah, and it's not just about the individualization, but the scale of it also has dramatically increased. So it's not just about when you go in and buy something, but even if you go in, you don't buy something, if you just look at something, if you walk past the store, all this stuff is now being tracked and, and categorized 
there's so much more data on us. There's so much more information. There's so many more categories they're tracking all this on, which is something we're going to explore later on in this episode. Okay, so you just said we're, we're being tracked a lot more and on a larger scale. And you mentioned, I guess, walking into a store and looking at something that can be tracked. What exactly do you mean when you say, like, if we look at something that's being tracked? Well, this is one of my favorite topics to get onto. So I'm a huge privacy advocate. I spend a lot of time looking at papers, doing research, looking at advertising products and stuff in order to get a better idea of just how much this landscape has changed. And that change has been dramatic, especially in the past five years or so. And one of the ways that this landscape has evolved so dramatically is facial tracking. And this is something I don't think people realize is as ubiquitous as it is and is is as advanced as it is. Um, We all have a little bit of limited experience with facial tracking on your cell phone or on on modern point-and-shoot cameras. You know, when you take a picture, it has like smile detection and like facial detection and it automatically focuses on those. Um, And that's most people's experience in day-to-day life of facial recognition and how far it's gone. Or maybe if you upload a photo to Facebook or something, it'll suggest who this person is, you know, say, is this David Tercivia here? And tag it yes or no. Um, And so people are aware that this technology exists, but I don't think they realize how much it's entered the everyday life. I mean, it's very common to see like security cameras outside office buildings and you walk into a bank and there's cameras on the ceiling. But I imagine a, a facial tracking camera would be pretty expensive and kind of hard to implement in lots of different places. Well, you'd be surprised. So a lot of this camera technology is good enough. Um, And in a lot of places even didn't have to upgrade their cameras in order to start getting this technology. We've had HD cameras for a while, especially with loss prevention programs. A lot of big stores were pioneers in this. Uh, Target is always a big one pushing this sort of technology. And so the way these systems work is, yes, you can buy them with new special cameras that are optimized for this. But they've also devised ways that they can hook all these cameras up to a computer on the back end and integrate this facial recognition technology all at once. Um, So you can just walk into a bank or a restaurant or a bar or a church even when I've seen these these sold and marketed to churches and, and pitch this idea where you take your already existing camera technology route it instead of into recording for security purposes and instead route it into the system. And next thing you know, you're analyzing everyone's face. People walk in, it recognizes that you are a woman, 18 to 35, and you look happy right now. And you spent this many seconds looking at this section and you spent this many seconds glancing at that. And you can see readouts of all this data, analyzing your emotions and your micro emotions second to second, automatically throwing you into demographic classes and analyzing exactly how it is you interact with the store, with the displays and with everything. You're saying it can tell what my emotions are? Yeah. So a lot of these technologies use machine learning, which is one of the big buzzwords people use all these days. And it means more or less that this, uh, they write this sort of vague algorithm that teaches a piece of software to learn and recognize stuff. And then run through lots of emotions called training data. And they, they keep showing up pictures and say, this is a happy person and this is a sad person and this person is is angry and whatever. And, and they keep showing these like very simplistic emotions over and over, but hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of different images and letting the, the computer learn to recognize these things from all these different points it, it tracks and follows on our faces. And over time, the software learns to recognize new pictures and new videos that come in and automatically classifies this. And some of these companies advertise this facial recognition tracking services and not just learning about emotions, but um, offering data on IQ, on impulsiveness, likely jobs and stuff. And it gets really into this almost pseudoscience phrenology-esque ideas. Um, it's almost like we're back in like the 1920s and there's someone out there with a caliper measuring the size of your skull, deciding if you're like an intelligent person or, or a mongrel race or something. That's pretty scary. I don't like the idea of being judged on 
my emotions and IQ. I try not to, you know, tell people about my IQ. I'm a little embarrassed about it. But what does all this mean in terms of my experience? So I've been walking into retail stores, you know, ever since I can remember. But I don't feel like the experience has changed that much. I mean, I walk in, there's shelves, I buy what I want and I leave. What use is analyzing my facial expressions and what I do within the store to the retailer? What, what can they do with that data? Well, it depends on how far they've, they've worked on integrating these programs. So some stores, um, and this is the ultimate goal, and a lot of them would love to get rid of the hard price tags you see on everything. When you walk up to a shelf, there's a sticker there that says, this is nine ninety nine. And they would love to switch to sort of digital pricing where they can update these tags dynamically all at once. And the idea then ultimately is that they would love to customize prices for who you are. And if they analyze your face and discover you look wealthy or uh, like you have a good job or you're in a good mood or something, they're going to charge you more money. And if you look unhappy, if you look like uh, you might not have as much, you can't pay as much, then they might charge you less. Or if they don't want you in your store, they'll jack everything up really high to get you to leave and go somewhere else so you don't come back and hurt the shopping experience of other consumers. And we're not quite here yet. There's some stores that are demoing very early examples of this technology. We're not anywhere close to it on a wide scale, but this would not be surprising to see in five years. And certainly by 10 years, it's going to be commonplace. But it's not just that. So this data is also used for digital advertising. So say you go to a store and you spend a long time looking at some product and you ultimately decide you don't want to purchase it for whatever reason. Maybe you don't really need it. Maybe you decided this is not the right one. Maybe the price isn't right here. And you leave and you forget about it and and that's it. You've gone on your merry way. But they've tracked this and they know all sorts of things about you based on how you looked at it, how you interacted in this facial analysis. And they've collated that with other data they have on you based on information your phone carries or say you purchase something else and they can link it to your credit card and then your phone number and then everything else about you. And the fact that you looked at this product now follows you. So you go online, you log on to Facebook, you go search for Google. Your results and what you see changes based on on what this store is targeting, knowing that if it can just show you this specific type of ad, or if they can shift what kind of news stories or what you're seeing on your friends' profiles, then they can change your behavior and get you to purchase something that you've already decided you didn't want to buy at the moment. And by modifying what you see and what your world is around you, ultimately they're able to modify your behavior and capture that sale and, and extract that money from you. And this sounds insidious, and I mean, it sort of is. Ultimately, all this advertising, all this tracking and stuff is about this behavior modification. And we have all sorts of like PC words for that. Advertising ultimately at its core is about behavior modification on both a personalized and mass scale. And and some of these, when you go read the uh, ad copy of these websites, like pitching these facial recognition software, they're open about this. And like, we can help you modify the behavior of your customer in order to extract more money from them. And they say basically that point blank, which is almost sort of refreshing that at least they're honest about what they're doing. I still find it pretty unsettling. I mean, I've never liked billboards. You drive down the street, you see all these billboards, but at least I feel like, okay, I know they're trying to you know, sell me the fast food joint down the road. And I feel like I have a choice where I can say, no, I don't want to do that. Even though there are like subliminal attempts to get my attention. Like I've heard that the color red makes people think of food. So, but all of it is out in the open. I feel like I have a choice to reject it, but this sounds like I don't really know that it's going on. Like I can look at something in the store and then that somehow, how does that get to my phone and and what I see on Facebook? Well, we'll talk about the process of how that 
information propagates and is spread out and bought and sold and traded and then combined with other things and ultimately used to change your behavior. But uh, you mentioned billboards. I want to bring this up for a second. So maybe you've started seeing these digital billboards pop up, both, um, you know, screens in stores, advertising in like their windows. If you're living in a larger city, you'll, you've definitely seen small digital billboards on like the sides of bus stops or on the street corners. Here in New York, we have this like free Wi-Fi kiosks that the city has has built. And the city actually didn't pay for any of these. They were built um, entirely by advertising companies who put up all the money for it in exchange for building these billboards all over so they can advertise to people. But they also built cameras into these billboards. And they analyze you as you walk by and you look around on them. Um, if you register to use their free gigabit Wi-Fi, then it tracks your email address and your phone Mac ID and it follows you as you go around the city to see where you spend time, what stores you go into. Um, and then it, it tracks your face and it knows what you're looking at and it can tell when you're approaching and it changes the ads that's shown on this digital billboard in the real world to specifically target you where it says, oh, this person is likely going to the shopping district right now. They're going to stop into H&M. Let me show them an ad for that. Or let me show them an ad for Zara and try to get them to go there or something. And this sort of advertising, this tracking that we've gotten used to on the digital space and Facebook and stuff where we come to expect these custom personalized ads is now spreading out and interacting in the real world and sort of shifting our experience of cities and of public spaces into something that's personalized for us in order to get us to spend money, in order to change our behavior and to get to us to do different things that don't necessarily benefit us, but benefit these companies that are advertising to us and trying to manipulate our behavior in order to extract you know, that, that money from us. Or in cases of political ads, get us to do a specific behavior, whether that's vote, whether that's not vote, or anything in between. You mentioned manipulation at some point, and maybe that's a strong word, I don't know, but I definitely get the sense that this has a way of distorting my image of the world, because when I think of marketing and advertising, I think of it as kind of a blanket thing that applies to everyone. And part of the appeal of certain products is the social aspect that you know a lot of other people are engaging in this activity or product as well. If you're saying I can just walk down the sidewalk and see advertisements that are tailored to me personally and no one else is seeing it, I don't know, that opens a whole other dimension for me. It's like I'm seeing a world that no one else can see and that's influencing my behavior and, and what I think other people are doing when in reality it could just be directed at me based on some of the things I've done or, or things I've revealed about myself without even knowing it. Well, I mean, we're not talking about like a fully augmented reality yet where like the people walking next to you see something different. But it might be something like you're walking with friends down the road and this camera analyzes you and your friends and it picks out all your faces and then it checks with its database and it says, oh, you know, this person is depressed based on our other data that we've we found. And that triggers this very quick ad auction that happens. Um, and this all happens within milliseconds. And uh, somebody says, oh, we're trying to target depressed people to sell them this product because we know they're more likely to purchase our product if they're depressed. Whether or not this is something that's good for them or not, or whether it has anything to do with depression or not, but they just know the fact that depressed people are more likely to buy this. And so then it figures out and it analyzes all your other friends and say, oh, this guy's like wealthy. He has more money to spend, blah, blah, blah. And it looked at all of you and it said, okay, this person is most likely to buy something. We're going to target them. And because of that, we're going to get the most expected return out of this. And then it shows you this ad. This is crazy, right? Like this is a crazy process. This is crazy to think that this is happening. But for some reason maybe because we don't realize how much this is occurring, or maybe because uh, we just accept technology as like, oh, you know, it's new and it's improved, therefore it must be better than the old way of doing things, or it must be a good thing just because it's higher tech. We just accept it, and that, that's crazy to me. I don't know. 
all this is done with the intent of selling me something, it sounds like. That, that sells it short. I don't want to say that this is just for selling because advertising is about more than just getting you to buy a product, right? So all retailers, all corporations, they identify you as having a lifetime consumer value. There's jargon for this. And it says over the course of your lifetime, you are worth X number of dollars to this company if they can capture your business. And that might not mean selling you something right now. It might mean just priming you right now, modifying your behavior so that somewhere down the road, you will become a customer of theirs and they can extract the most value possible from you. It's not always about selling things and especially in political advertising, which is something that's easy to grasp. They're not trying to sell you a product. They're not trying to get money out of you. They're trying to get you to vote or they're trying not to get you to vote or they're trying to get you to care about a topic because then you'll support or you won't support politicians who also are in favor of this or against this or whatever. I think that's really the purest form of understanding this, this type of advertising because it is truly about modifying your behavior in the real world. Whether it comes to you digitally or whether it comes to you in a physical space like these advertisements or these billboards, it's about modifying your behavior to best benefit the advertiser. Whether that's a company, whether that's a person, whatever it is, it's about getting that desired outcome of your behavior based on showing you different things, based on shaping what you see and ultimately affecting how you think in order to get that behavior. And even though I feel like I'm a pretty frugal person, I'm careful about what I buy and I try to pay attention to the things going around me, I do feel a little bit like it's overwhelming or, or almost like I'm powerless to, to notice some of these things because I go throughout my day a lot and I'm zoned out or I'm thinking about something else. And you know, a lot of people have seen that video that was part of a psychology study where a man in a gorilla suit dancing around a basketball court while, you know, a basketball game is going on and, and no one notices the gorilla because they're focused on something else. And I do that a lot in life. I feel like there's a, there's a huge opportunity to influence the things I'm doing and I just have no idea because there's just too much to focus on. Well, a lot of this is hidden too. So maybe this is a good time to explore just like how this whole mechanism works because the actual companies themselves are ones you've never heard of. And they operate in ways that you can't see easily unless you're looking into the details of all this. So it might be best to spend a few minutes examining what this chain of tracking does and how it goes from watching your face in a CVS or recording that you walked past this place or you spent this amount of time here based on, on signals coming in from your phone or, or some of the more insidious trackers would say like, oh, you went to the doctor's office, then you went to the back specialist. And so we know that you're hurting and you're in pain. So like, how can we take advantage of that? Every single thing you do is ultimately playing into this thing. And it's not even necessarily about like, we have cameras here, we're watching what you're doing. But every time you have any action that at one point touches a digital network, odds are somebody is scooping up the information from that, entering in a silo. Then that company is turning that, selling it to another company, which sells it to another company, which combines it with more information, sells it to another company, and then ultimately gets up to these like five or six mega data brokers. And then they turn around and sell this information to advertisers who use it again to modify your behavior, to get you to buy stuff, to get you not to buy stuff, whatever it is they're trying to do. And so let's take a look at that process for a second. So you say there's a process where all this data gets aggregated to these big data brokers or whatever. Um, so how, is, how does the data get pulled in in the first place? Well, maybe it's best to start looking at what types of data they're collecting, because it's not just retail transactions. You know, like, yeah, you went into the store and bought a Snickers at 1 a.m. And that says something about you. But like, that's just how, what we buy and stuff. It doesn't feel like such a huge invasion of privacy. But these data brokers and ultimately advertisers have access to a lot more information than we would guess, um, things that might be very personal. 
So for example, there's a lot of companies that track your health. So they know that you have asthma. They know you have arthritis. They know that you're an alcoholic. They know you're addicted to gambling. They know you have some sort of sexual problem, whether that's uh, impotence, maybe that you have no sex drive, or maybe you have an overactive sex drive. They track your doctor's visits. They track your prescriptions. They track uh, every time you go to any sort of doctor's office. Some of them can even track diagnoses. And basically everything about your medical health history that they can get without violating HIPAA if they're in the United States. And again, this conversation is mostly relegated to the United States. So this is happening around the world, Um, especially we'll, we'll get to the conversation later about what's going on in Asia, because there's some really interesting implications of what this data can have that are already happening there. And we might find ourselves experiencing the same in the future here in the United States. But all this data is is collected in all sorts of things that we would find very personal. Financial data. So we, we're familiar with the credit reporting agencies, especially with that large hack Equifax just had. But, you know, data on how much money you have, how much money you earn, how much uh, your loans, how much money you owe people, how late you are on those loans. Things just past your credit score, but very detailed things about your life. The value of your vehicles, all sorts of stuff. And then the, the last thing is, is risk assessment. This is the kind of stuff we're familiar with in terms of insurance. How you drive, for example, is a big one that insurance companies are trying to get. So modern insurance tracking, they would love to put these boxes in your car that analyze how quickly you brake, whether you ever speed, you know, speeding a mile or two over the speed limit, which is something we all do. They would love to analyze that and see the fact that you do speed, that that puts you at a higher risk bracket and they can charge more money from you. And this is something that we see is going to be integrated directly into cars in the future. And it is occurring right now, actually, with these smart cars and stuff, with integration of Android Auto, with integration of, of Apple's CarPlay, um, and other smart cars that are connected to the internet. This data can be automatically collected and given to insurance agencies who then analyze this. It doesn't just end there. They take this and pass it on to other data brokers who then pass it on again and ultimately find this way to advertisers. So all these things that we find super personal are actually being tracked and recorded. Okay, that surprised me, though, about the medical information. Isn't there some kind of doctor-patient confidentiality? And I'm assuming they, who you're talking about, are are data companies and corporations. How do they get access to my medical information? Well, yeah, I mean, the conversations you have between your doctor and you are are protected under certain things. There's a lot of details about your health that are protected. And there are very strong medical laws that cover all this. In fact, the HIPAA legislation, which is our Health Data Protection Act, is the most powerful piece of privacy legislation that we have in the United States. It's a really great start for what we should be basing off these other privacy conversations about when we're talking about legislative answers. But there's a lot of information that bleeds out. And so this concept of data around the edges. So maybe for the conversation about metadata before, um, when we were talking about Edward Snowden and some of the, the NSA leaks and stuff, well, the same concept carries over to this sort of commercial data. And all these little tiny bits of pieces of your life end up as data that sort of bleeds out. And taken as an individual piece, it's nothing to worry about. It's just out there. But when you start collecting all these little things, when you can collect from somebody's phone or from uh, these doctor's offices, which will sell some of this data to these data brokers or insurance agencies, like you go to this doctor's, you pay an insurance, then your insurance agency records some of this data, and then somebody buys this data from the insurance agency. And some of it is HIPAA protected, but a lot of it isn't. And they take all this stuff and they, they analyze it and then find its way to these lists. And you can actually, you can go online and buy lists of people with with all sorts of medical problems in order to send them advertising. And it's cheap. You want a direct mailing list of like half a million alcoholics? Or if I'm an advertiser, you know, half a million gamblers, which is a very vulnerable demographic, if I want to take advantage of them, 
cost me a couple hundred dollars. This data is not hard to find. It's not expensive. It's, it's within the grasp of anybody. Yeah, I actually looked at one of these companies that sells these lists, dmdatabases.com, and they have all these types of uh, categories that they put people in. And you can choose certain categories of people and send mailings to them or whatever, or get the information. And I looked at the medical one and I was just kind of shocked. They have people categorized by addictions, gambling, alcohol, drugs, sex. They have ailments, just hundreds of ailments, multiple sclerosis, asthma, anything you can think of. And what also surprised me is they had a whole list of drugs. They said, these are people who have taken certain drugs and you can just select this list. And then you can further break it down by demographics. So you could select a zip code or an income bracket or an age and then select, I want to target people that have taken this drug and who are also clinically depressed and antisocial. And the layers and different customization you can do is really shocking. So let me just jump in there real quick, because I want to emphasize just how many data points these companies record about each and every one of us. So in the past, when you're tracking somebody, you have very basic data. It's maybe 10 or 20 points, um, you know, sex, age, maybe income, location, you know, basic stuff like that, as well as information on how to contact them. Now... It's routine for one of these larger data broker firms. Maybe you've heard of the company Oracle. They're one of the big players in this, this area. They boast about having 30 to 50,000 categories that they place each and every one of us in. So this extends way past basic demographic data, but into every single tiny detail about you. Things that you don't even realize, things that your friends don't realize, things if you asked yourself. I mean, if you sat down and you said, I'm going to write 50,000 different things about myself, you couldn't do it. But this machine learning picks up all these details and datas and tiny little signals in this noise of, of information to reveal a stunning amount of information about us. And then this information is turned around and used to take advantage of us. And when you think about data, I tend to think of a hard fact about something I did. Like I went into a store and bought something at such and such time for such and such price. And even with online services and retailers where, you know, they may tell you they don't sell your data or share your data with other people. But what I found out is that even if they say they don't share that hard data, they're still free to interpret it and categorize it and put labels on it and then sell that, which and oftentimes is even more valuable to these companies that are buying this data. For example, you know, let's say I go on Amazon, which is something I did recently and bought an espresso maker at one o'clock in the morning. Amazon can then make an interpretation of that and say, Oh, Daniel has a mild addiction to caffeine and he has impulsive tendencies, especially at one o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and I'm wondering how can companies use that interpretation and that data to then target me, not just in general, but at different moments of my life where I might be more vulnerable than other times. Yeah, I, that's a really great example. And I think the impulsive nature of that especially is one of these marketers favorite categories to target. But that, that bleeds out a lot of information about you. It, it tells us, you know, like you said, that you're impulsive, that you buy things at weird times so that they can advertise to you at weird times. It shows that you're up late. That means you're probably a later riser. All these sort of little details of this one purchase, which the facts are, I bought an espresso maker from Amazon at 1 a.m. and shipped it to this address and I paid with this credit card or whatever. Someone becomes all these vague ideas about who you are and they call this inferred data. And that's predicting both who we are and what we will do. And that information about what we will do is used to show us ads or not show us stuff. Or in the case of Facebook or Google to customize our news feeds to show us more friends or show us more hard news or whatever it is in order to get that expected behavior to change our behavior from what they thought we would have done before to something that aligns with the values 
um, and the needs of these companies and corporations. We've been focusing a lot on purchases and advertisements, but I think we all like to think that we're kind of immune to advertisement. At least I feel that way a little bit. But even more importantly, isn't this a lot of this to our benefit? I mean, wouldn't I like to receive uh, personalized advertisements that are based on my interests and what I like rather than having to wade through images of products and activities that I have no interest in? I mean, it seems like it'd make my life a little bit more efficient. So there's a couple problems with that. The first is this assumption that you have to be looking at ads. You don't, you know, <laughs> they're there to try and get you to do something. They're not a necessary part of the function of anything. And though, you know, we always have that explanation like, oh, you know, ads pay for this news story or this pays for this website or whatever. It doesn't have to. That's just the model we've chosen at this point. It's not something that's necessary. And we like to think of the ads as the product on these websites, but it's that old tired cliche about when you're not being charged for anything, you are the product. And so these websites like Facebook and, and even the news and stuff aren't selling ads as a way to make money. They're selling you to advertisers. And that's the, the way we need to think about this. But in terms of personalized ads, it's interesting. They, they can also manipulate the way we think about ourselves. So I, there was this great study where they showed people what they told were personalized ads. And uh, they found that if they showed personalized ads, quote unquote, because they weren't, they were just ads that they picked out that uh, made people feel better about themselves, they were more likely to purchase this product. So for example, they showed ads for an expensive watch to some of these people and told them that they were picked out and personalized for them because they are seen as a sophisticated consumer. And these quote unquote sophisticated consumers who were just showing a picture randomly decided, you know what? I am a sophisticated consumer and I deserve to buy this watch because of that and totally changed their behavior, tricked them into thinking that this is true when it's not at all. In reality, you're not shown ads because you're a certain way or because of certain strength, but because these ads analyze you and find out you have a weakness that they're able to exploit. Whether that's, oh, they have a propensity to buy these green products, so we can take advantage of that and sell them. Or, oh, this person is depressed right now, even though they may not even know it at the time, and we can use this to target some stuff. And this has big consequences in life. There are cases where ads have ousted people with private information that they didn't want out and changed their lives. In some countries, you know, being outed as gay or something on accident by one of these ads can have disastrous consequences for your professional career and, and even for your life. It becomes almost a life and death situation. So in one instance, it was found that Stanford was sending out these advertisements for its SAT course. And the price for the SAT course would fluctuate based on the zip code that it was being advertised to. And it was discovered that Asian demographics were particularly vulnerable. So Asians were being charged more for this SAT course. And the lower the income of, of these people, the higher the price would be, presumably because these Asians of lower income status were more willing to pay to send their children to a good education class. So this personalized stuff can be very aggressive. And it's not necessarily about finding the best deal for you, but it's about extracting the most value as possible out of you. And again, to go back into situations where some people have been like really torn up about this, the go-to case for every privacy person is Target. So a few years ago, before a lot of this facial tracking and stuff, this was in the early days of data analytics for your consumers. This young girl came into the store and happened to buy some products that Target decided was associated with uh, pregnancy. This girl was pregnant. She lived at home with her family and she didn't want her family to know. But Target picked up on this because she bought some vitamins or, or coconut body cream, things that they had decided were associated with mothers. 
And so Target have found that if they were able to capture the business of these early mothers immediately, then they would often be able to hold that business of that person as the child grew up throughout their life and create a consumer that lasts, you know, 15, 20 years. They're tremendously valuable. And so they do everything they can to capture this, this consumer as a customer for life. And so they targeted her and sent her tons and tons of customized coupons because even direct mailers that we get in the physical world now are customized for us. They know what we buy, they know what we like, and they send us very specific coupons for that. And so she started getting coupons for baby stuff, for diapers, for things. And it kept happening and happening. And her mother and father were all of a sudden like, why are we getting all these baby ads? You know, I'm not pregnant. I'm not having any kids. And eventually it came out that this girl was the reason why. And Target outed the fact that she was pregnant to her family and caused a huge problem at home. And so this personalized advertising, it's important to remember, there are no consequences for getting things wrong. There are no consequences for outing people and destroying their lives, hurting them in ways that the people who designed these algorithms that came up with these ideas never anticipated. There's no consequences at all for accuracy. There's no oversight. There's no, there's no ethics board. This is a, a wild west industry and there's so much data and they know so much about us and there's absolutely no oversight. And that's crazy to me. I can't imagine how this happened. The fact that we freak out about government surveillance and the fact that they, you know, whatever it is that they know, it's a fraction of what these private companies know and sell about us every day, every second of your day. And there's just very little outrage. There's very little knowledge of this even is happening because these companies are so big. This process is so Byzantine. We don't know what's going on. Yeah. And this topic is so interconnected with so many areas of life as evidenced by the fact that we've kind of walked away a little bit from the things in our real world experience. But speaking of the home, Oh, don't get me started on the Internet of Things. Let's talk about that for a second, right? What is the Internet of Things? Yeah, okay. This is one of my favorite, one of my other favorite rants. And it ties in really well with this real world tracking. So Internet of Things, all these, these wonderful new gadgets that we have and we put in our homes that make our lives so convenient and technically magical, gets us closer to that Jetsons future, are all part of this Internet of Things. This is light bulbs. This is refrigerators. This is our thermostats. These are our vacuum cleaners. All these cool little things, you know, like I walk home, I press a button on my phone, my, my light bulbs turn on, and then, uh, you know, I can change the color. My Nest thermostat comes in and, and knows I'm home and it starts adjusting the temperature to heat it up to the temperature I like. My Roomba is going around vacuuming everything and it knows where everything is and blah, blah, blah. And a million little things that are so cool. And, and, and oh my God, the... Um, Amazon, can you raise the volume of this podcast episode right now? Yeah. Alexa, please subscribe to Ashes Ashes. Um, <laughs> those, those little Amazon Alexa, Apple Siri home things and the, the Google Home, these are literally always on listening microphones. It's crazy to me that we're paying somebody money to put these in our house. And then they, they're used for advertising, they're used for selling, and they're used for tracking and building data about us. Um, and some of the advertising is built in and it's hidden, it's not advertising. There's this great story I love about one of the Google Home products. So somebody came and he asked like, okay, Google, what's my day look like? And it told him, you know, his schedule and, and the weather and whatever. But then it ended as with an ad about Beauty and the Beast telling him, oh, and by the way, Disney has this wonderful Beauty and the Beast experience going on right now that you should really check out. Google had said that it wasn't an ad, but, you know, they had noticed that this guy didn't have much going on in his life. So they wanted to suggest something fun for him to do. Yeah, they call it like experiences story with one of our Google Home partners. You can call it whatever you want, but it is an ad. And you can call an ad whatever you want, but it is behavior modification. 
and that's fine if it's a guy he can just be like well that's weird this is a weird future i don't know why i paid money for this but if you have kids at home they're going to be hearing these things they're interacting with these things and this is going to be they're just going to assume this is how the world works and it does affect their behavior it changes how they grow up and it changes the way they interact with the world speaking of children toys now fall under this category of internet of things i've seen a lot of toys that have Wi-Fi connectability, and mm -hmm. I'm not really sure why a toy would need Wi-Fi, but... This is another one that I really like. There's this robot or doll or something. They gave it to the kids, and then it asks these kids questions about themselves. So it's like, well, what's your name? And the kid's like, oh, you know, I'm Billy. Then ask Billy, what are your parents' names? And then it tells Billy tells his new little friend his parents' names. And it keeps going on and asks about his school and asks about their family and all sorts of detail and stuff. And then it turns out this is a, a toy made by like Hasbro or a toy company, but a robot made by an intelligence agency who is selling toys to people in order to collect data. And then oftentimes uh, the Internet thinks this has terrible, terrible security because the focus is on selling these products, getting them out cheap, getting them out quick. And one of the dolls that falls under this Internet of Things category, you could actually connect to it with a Bluetooth device from up to 50 feet away. So, and there was absolutely no security around it. So I could be on a street somewhere outside of an apartment building and pull up my phone and look for Bluetooth devices in the area. And the doll would just show up as one of these devices with the name of the doll, you know, clearly a children's toy. So I could connect to it. And, and because the, the nature of this doll as, um, you know, talking to the child and recording the child's responses, which is creepy enough as it is, because I'm now connected to this device, I can actually interact with it in the same way. So not only can I record what the child says to this doll, but I can actually record my own voice and talk to this child from, you know, 50 feet away through my Bluetooth device. Yeah, I mean, who comes up with these ideas? This is literally insane again. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills all the time when I'm reading these stories. Like, how is this allowed to happen? Who okayed the idea? The biggest thing my mom had to worry about when I was a kid was whether or not I played a violent video game. And now we have to worry about if a six-year-old is interacting with a toy that's secretly recording everything about him or her. And then a lot of this data ends up online anyway. So like we think it's only a conversation between the kid and the toy. And then we learn it's uploading it to the internet. So, okay, now it's a conversation between the kid, the toy, and whatever company owns this toy. But then oftentimes these get hacked. There was a story recently, like 5 million of these messages between kids and their toys were just released. And this data is out there. Um, and a lot of it is resold to advertisers anyway. But it's phenomenal just how terrible the security is and how much... We don't realize some of the tracking is, is going on with these devices. I mean, Roombas, it's a vacuum cleaner. It's supposed to vacuum, and that's it. But Roomba decided, oh, we weren't making enough money just selling vacuum cleaners. So now our Roombas are going to build maps of your house. These are the automated vacuum robots that go around. The little automated vacuum robots that everybody films cat videos with that you see on YouTube and stuff. But, but they're mapping. They're little mappers now. They map out your house. And they upload this to Roomba, and then Roomba sells this to advertisers who want to learn how big is your house, when are you home, how often do you vacuum, blah, 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 all sorts of stuff about you. Um, even benign things like, oh, it's a nest, it's a thermostat, it turns the temperature up or down, and it knows to turn it up and down at certain times. Very simple, right? That information is, again, part of this metadata. It knows when you're home. It knows, you know, where you are in the house sometimes. All this extra data that you think would be a benign thing, your, your Philips Hue light bulbs, for example, it knows where you are in your house. You can assign like locations on these light bulbs, like, oh, I'm in the bedroom. This is a bedroom light bulb, and this is a 
living room light bulb. And so by doing this, now Phillips knows, oh, th- somebody's in the living room right now. Somebody's in the bedroom right now. And this data becomes very valuable for Philips to turn around and sell to advertisers who can use this to customize the way that they interact with you. I've been seeing a lot of advertisements for TVs, too, that are being marketed as smart TVs so they can connect to the Internet and your favorite streaming service. Are you saying that I have to worry about those as well? Yeah, and a couple of different ways, actually. So one, these TVs are tracking what you watch. So when we think about tracking, oh, it's it's tracking what we watch based on information that's coming in off you know, the cable. And so if I like play off my Roku or my Apple TV or whatever, it's not going to have that info, but they're actually analyzing the video that's on the screen. So even if you're playing like pirated content, movies you downloaded, it still knows what you're watching and it uploads that data and sends it off to Samsung or LG or Vizio. And they turn around and sell that to advertisers. And they also work with companies like Nielsen, the, the TV ratings and stuff where they know how long you're watching Uh, what parts you watch when you turn it, you know, if you skip commercials, if you mute commercials, all sorts of detail and data that, again, becomes very valuable to advertisers. But even worse than that, they started integrating a lot of voice recognition for some reason in TVs. Most people don't even realize that their TV is capable of this, but almost all modern smart TVs have a microphone either on the TV itself or on the remote. And it's supposed to be like a cool, convenient feature, like, oh, change the channel, TV. And it's, the TV does that. But they're also using this to listen and they use it for advertising. And it's right there in your terms of service when you register and you sign up for the TV and you click it. Vizio was just sued about this actually and, and lost because they weren't upfront about the data they were recording and they're recording more information than they said they were. But this is this is just the life we have to expect now. Anything that connects to the Internet is connecting the Internet, not because it's trying to do some sort of convenient thing for us. The convenience is a side effect of them just trying to collect data on us, to upload this online, and then to use that to sell to data brokers, to ultimately turn around and manipulate us in some sort of way. That is our modern world. That is the Internet of Things. And even if we don't want to interact with this, if we're somebody who is not buying these gadgets and these little tech things and not purposefully putting microphones to listen to everything we say in our houses, we don't have a choice because going around on the streets and stuff, we are now tracked, we're watched, our faces are recorded. If you have a smartphone, it gives off beacon data for everything everything you do. So even if you disable Bluetooth, like on the latest iOS, Bluetooth's not actually off all the way because Apple and Google have these beacon programs, they're called beacons, that analyze your phone on Bluetooth. And while you can turn off Bluetooth, the, the default option is not to. It, it shows it as off and you can't connect it, but it's still giving off this data so that Apple can, can sell this tracking data to advertisers. And then, you know, that causes both ads that pop up on your phone when you're close to places as well as ads later on. This beacon data gets very detailed, where you are in stores, how long you spend in certain parts of stores, where you walked past. It's even integrated into a lot of like city street furniture and stuff. You have no idea how much you're being tracked, how much every single action you have is recorded. Everything you do is turned to data that is sold, sold, and sold again in order to collect and create this profile of who you are, which is turned around and used to sell ads or to show you certain things to get you to act a certain way. And it's not just selling ads. One of the surprising facts about all this is how it's used against you in in the financial world and financial services like credits and your ability to get insurance at a reasonable rate. Let's talk about that Chinese program right now, because I think that's a good segue into this. Because this is the future we might see. There are patents that exist for this already in the United States. Facebook is one of the major patent holders for this technology. 
Yes. So China right now, the government has this plan that they want to roll out in 2020 to enroll every citizen to be a part of this kind of social scoring system. So every citizen will get a number, a single number that will be determined by everything about their life, whether they get speeding tickets, whether they pay their bills on time, what kind of work they do. And all of this is going to be tied into this one single number that basically, I guess, we don't really know what the government's intent is, but I guess it's to show who's a good citizen, who's not a good citizen. It opens up also, I think the plan is is to give you access to money. If you want like loans and stuff, this is sort of replacing a credit score. But also, you know, like uh, say you're a student applying to schools and stuff, you have to have a certain social value number in order to get in or out. Some jobs won't be open for you. You know, the question becomes, what if they open this data to companies and they can use this to analyze you? You can't rent an apartment without having this number high enough or whatever. Well, it's funny you mentioned companies because the government is actually taking its research and it's taking its cue from about eight large companies that are doing something just like this in China right now. For instance, one of the big companies that's doing this is the financial arm of Alibaba, the huge shopping network. And analyzing everything about a consumer, they use that to build a credit score. And of course, that credit score is encouraged by these companies to be displayed and compared among consumers. A lot of dating sites require you to input your credit score, you know, to determine who you should be matched up with. Yeah. And I mean, I wonder how much this is already being integrated in things we don't realize. So say you bring up dating. Okay. Let's talk about Tinder for a second. The the go-to dating app or hookup app or whatever it is. I don't know anything about it. Well, we don't know what algorithms it's using, what it decides, how it's going to show you people or whether it's not going to show you people. And some of it's based on how many people swipe on you or don't swipe on you. But it's very simple for them to also integrate this sort of other advertising tracking data into it to make sure people are only shown people of similar financial ability, similar education levels, all the sort of details and stuff. Okay, Cupid is famous for doing this sort of data. And it's it becomes, it's almost like a weird sort of uh, like algorithms deciding who will get to have kids somewhere along the way because they're influencing who we get to meet and then who we get to meet is who we eventually fall in love and marry and have children with and so we're going to start seeing these first algorithm babies in the future Uh, this is one of these side effects that we don't think about of how these analytics and tracking and these black boxes of algorithms start influencing our world And so that Chinese company that we mentioned, this financial arm, one of the spokesmen came out and said that in bragging about the capabilities of this service, that it can take two people, say a mother who's purchasing diapers, which it knows because it's part of this shopping network, or versus um, another person who maybe plays video games 10 hours a day. And the spokesman says, and what our goal is, is to say which one of these people is more responsible and show that in their social score. And this is kind of alarming to me because. Do we want a company to decide for us as a society what is responsible and what is irresponsible behavior? And if we assume that these companies are profit-driven and driven by these short-term self-interests, what is it that is motivating these decisions of what is responsible and what is irresponsible? And you mentioned algorithms, right? So a lot of this decision about what is what this company wants to see in terms of responsible behavior is driven by algorithms. And we think of algorithms as this very neutral thing. You know, it's math driven. How can math have biases? But these algorithms are initially programmed by humans and all the human biases that we have go into them. And the way these algorithms go forward with their machine learning is that we don't really understand, even the people who program them, how the algorithms derive their end result. 
So a lot of these algorithms based on this data is being used to determine people's credit score. And as more and more data is taken from our activities that are outside financially related matters, like whether or not we play video games, this algorithm now has free reign to decide if we deserve a loan or not. And the loan officer that is ultimately going to oversee this decision has no idea how this algorithm came to that decision. And neither do we as a consumer. And that's pretty alarming considering that we may change our behavior based on what these companies are saying about us. Yeah. And another point that I want to emphasize with this technology and with a lot of these other algorithms too, is that it's not just your behavior that is taking into account, but also the behavior of your friends, of your family, of your friends of friends. So everyone's got that weird uncle who you like hate and he's like doing like uh, horrible things. He's influencing your score. That girl that was back in high school that was so cool back then, but then turned into like a weird burnout now, she's influencing your score. Every single person you interact with throughout your life and the people they interact with are all parts of your score. So while you might be personally responsible, maybe your family isn't, maybe whatever, you're being dragged down by the actions of others that may or may not actually have any influence on your ability to pay back a loan or whatever it is they're trying to decide about you. And so we really are losing control over our agency as individuals, as people, because they're boiling us down into scores and a values of, of whether it's this is the long-term customer value, what they're worth throughout their lifetime, whether it's this is the risk value of whether they're going to repay this loan or how much they're going to cost for our insurance company, or, you know, on a short-term thing, this is the chance that somebody's going to buy something. Everybody, all these algorithms, all this tracking, all this data, all this technology is about transforming you from an individual, from a human being into a chance of doing something. Your financial future is being decided by things that are even outside of your financial activities. I mean, there are financial service companies operating some of these Southeast Asian countries right now that are experimenting with, you know, determining credit scores based on if you use correct punctuation or grammar in your text messages, your call logs, your GPS information, your friends and associates. And I want to stop for a second, interject to point out the fact that while this is mostly going on right now in, in Asia, in Africa and South America, these are a lot of American firms that are the ones doing this. This is American technology, and it's eventually going to come back home to us. If, and it's already being integrated in a lot of stuff. So this is not like, a oh, the Chinese like boogeyman over there um, where we're red baiting or something. This is an American thing. This is an American technology, American ideas that are spread out and being used in all these places and are going to come back and bite us in the ass, just like they're getting everyone else right now. A lot of people will say, look... This is a lot of data, but I really am not worried about it because I have nothing to hide. But it does seem like we all have something to hide. We all have a private life that we'd like to think is hidden from view, from not just the public, not just strangers, but even our most closely intimated relationships. You may have a, a partner, a wife, or a husband, and maybe when that your partner leaves the house, you like to jam out to your favorite rock song in your underwear and not something that I like to do, but some people do that. And that privacy is very much a part of our life. And even the things that we do disclose to some people, we don't disclose to other people. So there are contexts for our information. We tell our banker something that we would never tell our doctor. We tell our doctor something that we would never tell our best friend. And so we have that expectation of privacy and contextualization. But what these companies are doing and tracking every single moment of our lives is breaking down those contextual barriers 
and aggregating this data into a single source, a single database. That's where this privacy violation really comes in and starts feeling actually like I'm being violated because they're taking information from my doctor and combining that with information from my banker and taking things that only my friends maybe know about me and rolling this all together to know a more complete picture of me than anyone else knows. This soulless, faceless company, these soulless algorithms pretend to know who I am based on collecting all this data of the different faces I show different people at different times. And that may or may not be true. That may not be who I actually am. It may think that that's who I am, but that isn't necessarily the case. And then using that information to manipulate me. It's crazy. And what really concerns me is the effect this will have on society over a long period of time. When that expectation of privacy is lost, how does that affect our ability to be creative? If you're a musician, you may like to practice your music alone before you show it to someone else. And when that is gone, it might affect your willingness to practice. Yeah, so I mean, this is a very, like, it's a cooling effect. Maybe you've heard that term before. Uh, where the fact that you know the things you do, the things you say aren't private anymore. So it affects your behavior. You do different things. You don't do something you would have done before. Um, I'm already seeing, like, kids now. So there, there's a, a website, okay? I was doing research for this episode. I came across a service called Social Filter. And it analyzes your social media for things that it thinks might be a problem for you, whether you're applying for schools or jobs or stuff. And a friend of mine was, was testing this out and he tweeted something vaguely political, very mild tweets. That is nothing that would rock the boat. He wasn't like calling for a socialist revolution or like a, some sort of weird Nazi thing or whatever. It was a very mild thing. But this software pops up and says like, oh, you know, it's important to care about politics and the government, but that social media is really not the place for that. So you should delete this. What? What? I've heard of that kind of social filtering where it'll go, you know, prune your Facebook for employers. But I didn't know it did that in real time. Yeah, it does. This, it sends you emails like warning you that this is the case. A social media is supposed to be a social place where you talk about these things. Where are we supposed to talk about them if everything is tracked and feeding into these algorithms? Like, where is this supposed to happen? Many years ago, when Facebook was first introduced, it was common to hear, look, be careful about what you put on there because when you go to a job interview, they're going to search you up. And do you want them to see your drinking party last night? No. So, you know, just be careful and keep it professional. And I think we all just kind of accepted that. But as we see it taken to its logical conclusion, we're realizing more and more that it's we, the consumer, it's we, the individual, and we as society that have to conform to what our employer expects us or our government expects from us. And I think we should start asking the question, are we the ones that need to conform and change our life to meet the expectation of a company? Or should it be the other way around? To me, the answer to that is unbelievably obvious. The fact that I would have to mold who I am as a person to be an ideal worker for somebody else, not to rock the boat, not to say something political, not to, to show myself drinking or anything that might possibly offend somebody. This is the like crazy end game of of making sure that you are perfectly conformed uh, worker bee. And that's who wants that? That's a boring world. That's that's not anything interesting. I don't want that as a person. I don't want to see I don't want to live in a world where that's expected, where that's happening around me, because all the the individualism, the creativity that emerges out of that and our experiences, individuals and human beings and whether whatever country we're from as Americans, as Chinese, 
part of that cultural identity, part of that that difference in society and who we are, what it takes, what it means to be living in the world, to be experiencing this culture is about that difference, about trying new things, about being weird, about doing all sorts of things that might not be seen as uh, socially acceptable in terms of the masses. And this emphasis on getting rid of that because now people will always see that because it's always recorded. The implications I have is terrifying. And look, we all make mistakes. Maybe you shouldn't have gone out last night and done that thing you did. But you took that social risk, you made a mistake, and then you slept it off and you go about your life. But what's unsettling about this data is that it it has no shelf life. It's there forever. It's your permanent record. And that thing you did last night is available to advertisers and insurance companies and financial services companies forever. And we shouldn't have to live with that reality. We should be allowed to make mistakes. We should be allowed to experiment. We should be allowed to be creative, to be individuals, but still exist in a society that accepts us and doesn't attempt to exploit those things about us. Well, exploitation, I mean, what is this, the implications for this for the future, for government leaders, for politicians, for uh, business leaders, has to be profound that people growing up in this right now that experience having every moment of their life recorded what's stopping these companies from taking this information and using that against them or what's stopping them from from a rogue employee from doing the same thing we've created the most powerful surveillance engine imaginable way more than than george orwell or aldous huxley or any of these dystopian writers could have imagined we could have done and we did it outside of the government the government has their own powerful surveillance but we created an even better one in the name of advertising and we've unleashed this power with no oversight with no ethics with no control over this data uh, into just the hands of a few companies and a few people. And the fact that this power is just sitting out there is terrifying. Yeah, and like you said, this has incredible implications for our sense of democracy when a politician that grew up in this information age can be approached by a company that has data on him or her and be forced to act or vote in a certain way. That's incredibly dangerous. Once again, we brought ourselves to a very negative, everything is awful, into this episode. But we're not going to stop here. We're going to talk a little bit more. What can we do in this situation? Unfortunately, like always, the answer is not a lot. In terms of legislation, there are some answers. Europe has some good privacy laws, the right to be forgotten, for example, which is a step in the right direction. But they still have this sort of consumer tracking there. Maybe it's not the scale or as personalized as we have here, but that doesn't really matter because like we pointed out, metadata reveals a lot about us. Again, it only takes about four pieces of random information in order to identify 90% of users, and that's four pieces of data. We have 30,000, 50,000 pieces of data. The cat's out of the bag. We've opened Pandora's box. It's not going to be shut again in terms of legislative action without shuttering these companies and stuff. So what are our options? Maybe this is why so many of us have this fantasy of living off the grid, you know, in the woods, living off the land, away from prying eyes. I mean, this is something that I actually plan to do. For real. But it's not really practical for most people. I mean, so many of us live in cities. There's not a lot of woods you can just go off to. And besides, even if there were, why should we be forced to do that? It's not really practical to just live off the grid. And I mean, can we live off the grid in this society? And is that really the only solution? I also identify with that fantasy. And I hope maybe someday that it won't be just a fantasy for me. But you're right, it isn't practical for everyone. And it's not practical for all of us at large. And so maybe this is a second for me to become just more than political than I have been. I have to say, so I'm left, very 
very far left. You keep going left and eventually you'll get to the end and I'm a little bit farther past that. And the reason I got all the way out there was struggling and grappling with this surveillance problem, both government and corporate. And for me, I looked at all these legislative solutions that we've seen. I've seen the companies and the government itself breaking these laws, ignoring these laws. And I came to the conclusion that I think the only way we can end this, that we can get around this, again, because this has already been let out, there's no putting it back in and getting rid of this technology, is by eliminating the incentives for it. So this tracking gives two big incentives to have this data, to record all the stuff about us and keep it forever. One is economic, in order to sell stuff to us and change our behavior. And two is uh, power. So the political aspect of it in order to influence elections and things, but also to influence the behavior of people. The only way to get rid of this is to kill those two incentives. And the only way to kill those two incentives are one, to restructure the economy so that there is no economic incentive for it. And of course, yes, that means some sort of communism or other alternative to capitalism. Sorry, all you entrepreneurs out there. And two, to create a power system that doesn't reward the consolidation of power. Yes, that means that our current political system and the way our world is structured at large is not compatible with this. We have to look to other alternatives. And there are them out there, and maybe that's a conversation for a different time. But our world has to be dramatically restructured in order for us to get away from this panopticon that we've built. That's interesting, David. I'd be curious to know if there's other solutions besides a total restructuring of society and economics and our political structure. And maybe that's something we can talk about in the future. You know, that's something I'm also questioning and trying to figure out myself. I would love to know those solutions too, Daniel, but maybe we can figure them out as we go forward. Again, this is not the only time we're going to be talking about tracking. There's a lot more to discuss here. Believe me, we've only just barely scratched the surface of any of this, and we're going to dig very, very far down into this whole world. We're going to talk about the actual mechanisms of this. And oh, are we going to spend a lot of time discussing Big Brother Facebook? Well, I'm certainly excited and I hope everyone is too. We've definitely got a lot more topics coming up that we're excited about. Again, we hope you join us. Tune in next week. And if you want to read more about any of this, if you want to see some of these creepy facial tracking videos from these advertising beacons, if you want to look at the research studies on metadata or any of these other links that we've gathered and collected and read through in order to start researching this episode and this series, we have those on our website at ashesashes.org under the name of this show, Permanent Record. And you can also find us on your favorite social network where they track all of us at Ashes Ashes Cast. I'm eyeing my vacuum cleaner right now. It's sitting in the corner of my room. I see it in a whole new light now. As you should, and as you should with every part of our new digital world. Until next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.